At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. W-A-B-E in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. March 8th is International Women's Day, commemorating the date in 1857 when female textile workers marched in protest of unfair working conditions and unequal rights for women. Today, we'll hear from some extraordinary women. Quaveni Kuhur, Ireland's Consul General for the Southeast United States, and Emory University Professor Geraldine Higgins share the beauty of Irish culture ahead of St. Patrick's Day. Plus, two Georgia Tech academics talk about the role of women in the movie Wakanda Forever. First, spring is in the air and we're beginning to see glimpses of buds and blossoms as nature emerges from its winter slumber. A popular, non-traditional Western holiday that celebrates spring is holy, a Hindu observance often called the Festival of Colors. Holi is an ancient spring festival observed by Hindus around the world, and it's all about celebrating the divine love of Radha Krishna with singing, dancing, and lots of powdered paint. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about Holi is Chef Palak Patel, the owner of the restaurant Dash and Chutney. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. Thank you for having me. Would you please tell us how your childhood in India led you to become a classically trained French chef? (laughs) As my childhood in India was really colored with living with 15 of my closest family members all under one roof, food became very central to who I was and how we connected with each other. And so it's no wonder that I chose to pursue a life centered around food to remind me of those great times with my family. Hmm. 
What were your experiences with Holi in India as a young girl? <laughs> I think one of those, as the Pixar movie calls core memories, as I have from my childhood, is celebrating Holi every single year. The best memory that I have is, you know, not just as a kid, but for the first time I saw an entire community come together and behaving like children. <laughs> that joy, that laughter, that celebration. It didn't matter if you were old or young. It didn't matter what caste you came from. This holiday as a kid became the great equalizer in everyone kind of participating in this joyful, colorful holiday. Oh, that's fantastic. Would you further describe the festival, its traditional customs and meals? Yeah, a little kind of mythology about this holiday. So Holi is, is named after the sister of one of the kings in India, Holika, which is where the name Holi comes from. And her brother was a king named Hiranyakashipu. Now, he really was very adamant that all of his people, you know, worship him instead of the gods. He really wanted to become a god. And so, you know, he requested all of his people to only worship him and no other gods except for his sons, who was a devout devotee of the Lord Vishnu. And so throughout this very divisive way of having his sister trying to basically kill his son, it didn't work because Holika had this magic power where she could go into fire and not get burned. And he thought, what a great way to have his son just kind of taken out of his way, have his sister go sit in the fire with Pralad, his son, on her lap. And when she did so, she instead burned and Lord Vishnu saved him. So this kind of becomes the mythology behind the holiday. So part religious, part mythology. So the big thing that Hindus do the night of Holi is they burn big bonfires. And this is very symbolic of the holiday of essentially overcoming good over evil. And then it turns into this beautiful, colorful, joyous holiday where people spread gulal, which is the colors that you're talking about. They're natural colors. Um, now they're synthetic, but, you know, essentially everything and everyone is covered in these beautiful colors, almost celebrating that victory that good had over evil and how Lord Vishnu saved this little boy and, you know, got rid of and killed the king, the evil king. So that's really kind of the, the background of it. The food, of course, there's no Hindu holiday that doesn't have food at the center of it. And so Holi is no different. Holi is all around snacks and snacks, whether they're savory snacks or sweet snacks, there's a drink even, a symbolic drink that they serve in India with a, almost like a hallucinogenic, it's called bhang. And so it's a, it's a drink that has pistachios, saffron, and it's a beautiful yellow mint green drink that everyone has throughout the holiday. They eat gujas, which are little sweet empanadas and all kinds of different snacks that are, are celebratory 
that you can enjoy with your family and your friends. So really, you know, once you have the whole day of essentially painting everything in every color, you then clean up and then you go to your friends and your family and you share these snacks, you give sweets, you exchange gifts. So it's a, it's a very beautiful holiday from a, a symbolic standpoint. It represents coming of spring and, and bringing color to our life after winter. Now, something that we see on Instagram, we've seen in news publications, in addition to people throwing colorful powder on one another, they often drench each other with water. <laughs> what kind of clothing would you recommend for people who'd like to participate? Yeah, so if you're not one of the lucky few that get to celebrate Holi in India, not a problem, because here in the U.S., we celebrate Holi in our own way. And the best thing to begin to celebrate Holi is find the whitest of white, clean white outfits that then can be canvassed in all of these beautiful colors. So my friends and family, we will go to a park or a rooftop and essentially wear all white. And then the mayhem begins where it's water balloons filled with these colors. You have water guns. So in India, the water guns are called pichkari, which is just these loaded like super soakers, if you've seen those, and you load them up with these colorful galal, the color, and then you just spray each other. So really nothing's off limits. So, you know, be prepared to get colorful and wear white so that you can really show that you participated and really celebrated the holiday. I love it. In a TEDx talk a few years ago, you spoke about the power of community, especially around cooking and eating. Will you elaborate on that for us? Yeah, I, I'm a big believer from my own personal family to just India as a country. I think it, the sense of community and community through food is such a strong fabric that stitches the, the country together. And Holi, to me, is such a beautiful holiday that really transcends past the caste and the, the socioeconomics of a culture. And for that one day, that one moment, you leave all that behind, you come into the street, and you are equals. And the community just comes together in this very joyous, laughter, you know, dancing in the street. And I think what a great way to transcend past all of these artificial societal, you know, things that we have in place. And Holi is able to eviscerate that for a moment in time. And then the food. So Holi traditionally goes towards lots of sweets and sweetness because of the holiday sweetness, because that's how we show love to each other. And what better way to say I love you than giving you a box of sweets, whether they were homemade or whether they were bought from the corner store from your favorite sweet shop. This exchange is very symbolic of what we are doing for each other. And it's symbolic in, in strengthening those communities. And food really just does play such a nice part in that, you know. So yeah, while you're 
celebrating and bringing in spring, you're also doing it through food, which is colorful and sweet at the same time. Your restaurant, Dash and Chutney, has been quite an impressive achievement. And I was wondering if you will have a holy celebration at Dash and Chutney. I will not, but I will be having a celebration with friends and family. It's a little messy to do it in a <laughs> uh, <laughs> indoor setting. Uh, so word to the wise, while you know celebrating this holiday is it's very fun. It's best to do it outside, you know, either at a public park or you know, a concrete place that you can easily clean up because I promise you, you will find color in the creases of your ear for days. But that's the beauty of it. Outdoors is recommended. Chef Palak Patel. More information about Holi, the Hindu festival of colors, is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up... We'll continue our celebration of international women with a look at the female roles in Marvel's Wakanda Forever. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the Metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Four years after the beloved Black Panther movie was released, the sequel, Wakanda Forever, has hit the big screen. This comes after the tragic passing of actor Chadwick Boseman in 2020. He portrayed King T'Challa, the Black Panther. Now the torch has been passed to his sister, Princess Shuri, the tech wizard of Wakanda. Joining me now via Zoom to talk about Afrofuturism and the role of women in the new film are two Georgia Tech professors, Dr. Lisa Yasek, Regents Professor of Science Fiction Studies in the School of Literature, Media, and Communication, and Dr. Susanna Morris, 
Associate Professor of Literature, Media, and Communication and Black Media Studies. Welcome to City Lights. Thanks so much for having us on air, Lois. Yeah, this is a pleasure. In both movies, Princess Shuri is a technological genius. What impact do you think it made on viewers to see this young Black woman as a brilliant tech inventor? I think it's had a huge impact on audiences of all stripes to see a young Black woman be intellectually curious, in fact, be the smartest or one of the smartest people in the MCU. And then for her to team up with Riri Williams, the kind of new Iron Man, right, who's also brilliant and is a teen, you know, wonder kid, I think is really important for for young people and folks of all ages. I know that my students at Georgia Tech have said to me that seeing films like Hidden Figures incited them and invited them to apply to Georgia Tech and pursue STEM, right? So I know that seeing Shuri makes folks have sort of similar reactions and for there to be a whole group of films, right? Or group of cultural production that's inviting people to rethink like, well, these are things that are possible for me. I've always liked to tinker, always liked science. I've always been into engineering and I can do that. And I can be wearing cornrows, a tracksuit. I don't have to conform to whatever notions of this is what a scientist quote unquote is supposed to look like or an engineer, right? I can also reflect my cultural background and wear my hair a particular kind of way or dress a particular kind of way, whatever that might mean, right? You yes. see a lot of science, in fact, in Shuri's lab. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's fantastic. I mean, even in the first movie, she's respectful of her brother, the Black Panther, but Shuri is the smartest person in the room. Can we agree on that? Right, right. Oh, well, at least until Riri Williams shows up, right? And I think that that's the exciting thing about the new Black Panther movie is that we don't just have a token Black girl genius. We now have at least two. And if you want to think about the Dora Milaje leaders as also a kind of mili- as military Black geniuses, we have a whole group of women Black geniuses here. And I think that that's so exciting. There's, you know, a history of representing Black genius that goes all the way back to colonial America and thinking about representations of Benjamin Banneker, who was the first free Black scientist and who used all the proceeds from his work to support the abolitionist movement. And we've seen that reiterated in storytelling in films, but it's often in the figure of a man and often just one isolated man. So again, I think the shift to seeing Black genius as including people of all sexes and genders and, and that there can be room for more than one Black genius uh, is important and amazing. And Susanna, I agree, this is so inspiring for our students at Georgia Tech, for real. And I should add for listeners who are not familiar with the new film, the character of Riri Williams is a 19-year-old Black female college student from the U.S., okay? It's not easy to walk that fine line between spoilers and providing enough information for the context here. Dr. Morris, when was Afrofuturism first introduced to the public? So the term was coined in the 90s, but the concept, which Lisa describes beautifully in, in some of her work, goes back to at least the 19th century in the United States. 
Uh, but Afrofuturism, as we know it, you know, the 90s, listservs, the internet, folks were like, hmm, we kind of, we see what's going on with Black science fiction uh, and technology, and we want to talk about, we want to name what we see out there in the world. So it could be anything from the artwork of Jean-Michel Basquiat or the music of anyone from Janelle Monet to Parliament Funkadelic to LaBelle, look at all their kind of astronaut, far out futuristic outfits to Outkast to the art of Wangechi Mutu or Natrice Gaskins. There are lots of public examples to the very mainstream Black Panther films and comics and things of that nature. I would, I'd love to let her off that for a minute. As Susanna said, Afrofuturism, we can find Afrofuturist storytelling at least back into the 19th century. And I'm actually doing some work now where I'm arguing that the, the colonial African-American poet Phyllis Wheatley could also be seen as a precursor of Afrofuturism. There are a number of her poems that essentially imagine the mothership and that treat Black artists as star children. And that kind of imagery became so important to Afrofuturism with the jazz of Sun Ra in the 1950s. And then of course, as Susanna was saying, with the explosion of black popular music uh, in the 1970s with Parliament and LaBelle. LaBelle, by the way, great call there, Susanna. My students love them, <laughs> love them. What are your thoughts, this can be for either or both of you, on how Black Panther showcases black actors in a multitude of roles as heroes and villains and somewhere in between. I think that's hugely important, right? I mean, it, it's you don't just want representation as the token Black person who's the good person who sacrifices themselves. Like, for how long did we have that? What What is it called? Like the magical Negro. I think that's what it's called in Hollywood. The idea that you have this one talented Black person and they're always good and they always sacrifice themselves for like the white hero. It was so nice to not have to worry about the white heroes or the white villains even, right? And to see, I think it's it, it really shows you how central this is becoming the American imagination that we can imagine not just a token black person as a token hero or a token villain, but you get to do all the roles. And I think to add to that, not only are black folks sort of allowed to be in the full depth and breadth of the, the imagination, we see Black cultural production at the center, right? So from the costumes, yeah, yeah. the outfits, the way yes. people adorn their bodies. And this was emphasized in the first film, but continues throughout the second. Most of the actors are brown skinned, they're darker skinned. And there is a huge continuing problem in Hollywood where, you know, colorism, right? Where the lighter yeah. you are, the more closer you are to kind of the European Western ideal, you know, the, the more acceptable you are in terms of the cultural imagination. And in Wakanda, people are, are, are pretty brown, right? And that's yeah. really beautiful to see that not only can you be a hero, a villain, you might be a hero and a villain in the same movie, low key, yeah. but also we we're seeing Black folk who are un unambiguously Black and Black folk come in all colors of the rainbow from your Meghan Markle to your, you know, Wesley Snipes, right? But in right. this movie... We're, we're doing the latter half of the spectrum. And I think that's fine <laughs> because oftentimes the lighter end yeah. of the spectrum really is what gets highlighted and Black folk look all kind of ways. Indeed. What do each of you think about Wakanda Forever's portrayal of Black women and their role in society? I mean, we've talked about how fantastic it is to see the scientists, but... 
What about the overall representation? There was a little bit of controversy online, as there tends to be, uh, with the portrayal of Black women and, of course, the unfortunate exit of Chadwick Boseman due to, you know, his death. And I saw some, you know, conversation around, there's a lot of Black women in the film and we need to have a male Black Panther step up and we hope it's not Shuri and all of this. What? Yes, there was. There, There really was. It was unfortunate. But that wasn't the main story. I bring that up just to say that, I don't know that I would call the film feminist per se, maybe, but there are Black women showing up as royalty, as leaders, as scientists, as military strategists, as spies, Black women in all these spaces, right, as spiritual leaders and so on. And I think it parallels and mirrors how we see Black women move in our actual communities across the diaspora. So it was very affirming. I've seen the film twice. I will go see it again in theaters. <laughs> and just looking around and seeing, there were all kinds of people in the theater. I saw it once here in New Jersey. I'm on fellowship and then also in Harlem. And there were lots of Black people and folks just looked really affirmed. You know what I mean? They just seemed so happy to see themselves Black women of different ages, mm-hmm right? Not just young Black women, but Black women in their 30s, 40s, 50s, and beyond. So it's a reflection of our community, and it's a beautiful thing. It is. Susanna, when you saw it in Harlem and then in New Jersey, were people dressed up? Because I've I've been, I saw both Black Panther and the Woman King here in Atlanta, and it has been just the amazing, the costume parade is, it was incredible. Like everyone just is embracing that. And I thought it was exciting. There were definitely folks dressed in white because that was supposed to be the, yes. the morning dress code. Yes. I see as I feel like Atlanta is a special place. Well, we are ground so. zero for cons and and black science exactly. fiction creation is just so rampant here, right? Um, exactly. Yeah. So just to ladder off what Susanna was saying, one of the things that really struck me about the second movie is that Obviously, Chadwick Boseman's death is it's a tragedy and it it stinks, right? I of course we all wanted to see him as Black Panther again. Having said that, I have to say when I saw the first movie, I was just so intrigued by the women and I wanted to know more about their world because they were the ones who seemed to actually be running everything and doing everything. And and I have to admit, I was excited that the directors took this opportunity with Wakanda Forever to really explore women's work in all its diversity. And it felt to me sort of like, I almost like echoes of, of the civil rights movement in, in the U.S. as I've studied it, right? Where at least historically speaking, men were often the public face, right? That like Martin Luther King is, is like the, the Black Panther. This is a terrible analogy. I should stop immediately, right? But but men tend to be at the forefront, or at least historically so, in the civil rights movement. But women were doing tremendous amounts of work in the background, right? Going door to door, connecting with white women one on one, and trying to build those personal bridges to bring together a better future. And this is one thing I find exciting about Wakanda Forever is it, it's finally a moment to celebrate the work that women do, and especially Black women, to build better futures. Dr. Susanna Morris and Dr. Lisa Yasek. Their commentary on women in Wakanda Forever comes from our December 2022 conversation. You can hear the entire interview on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, the Consul General of 
Ireland and Emory Professor Geraldine Higgins tell us about Atlanta's St. Patrick's Day celebrations. Amplifying Atlanta, this is 90.1 WABE. is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. People dressed in green, shamrocks everywhere, and joyous celebration. St. Patrick's Day festivities in Atlanta have begun. What started as a religious observance has evolved into a variety of festivals all over the world, with parades, food, music, and dancing. The local St. Patrick's Day Parade takes place Saturday, March 11th, presented by the Irish Network Atlanta. Joining me now via Zoom to talk more about the holiday is the Honorable Quiver Nikuhur, Consul General of Ireland for the Southeastern United States, based here in Atlanta, and Professor Geraldine Higgins of Emory University. She's an English professor and director of the Irish Studies Program at Emory. Welcome back to City Lights. Thank you, Lois. It's a joy to be back on your show. Thank you. Thank you. It's great to be here. Wonderful. So, would you tell us the origin story of St. Patrick's Day? Well, St. Patrick's Day has been celebrated, you know, throughout the island of Ireland for for a very long time. St. Patrick is the patron saint of Ireland and famously was said to have driven the snakes from Ireland and brought, as you said in your in your introduction, Lois, was said to have brought Christianity to Ireland. But today, it's as, as you rightly pointed out, it's evolved into just a celebration of Irishness, of the global Irish family the world over. There are parades right around the globe and uh, we are particularly proud of our parade here in Atlanta, which incredibly is the longest running event in Atlanta history. And I just think it's so interesting that the longest running event in Atlanta history is an Irish event. So on the 11th of March on Saturday, please proudly wear your green and join us in in Atlanta for the parade. And all are welcome. You don't need to be Irish to join us. Everybody is Irish around the time of St. Patrick's Day. So it's absolutely the highlight of our year in Atlanta. And we hope that the good people of Atlanta will come out in numbers and celebrate with us. We've spoken about the contrast with St. Patrick's Day observance in Ireland and how it's celebrated in the U.S. as well as globally. What are the major differences? I mean, I think, in fact, the celebration of St. Patrick's Day in the United States has had a boomerang effect in its influence back 
on Ireland because St. Patrick's Day is celebrated with such passion and aplomb in the United States that it's had its echo in Ireland in turn. I mean, in Ireland, we also have very big St. Patrick's Day parades up and down the country. But there are, I guess, cultural specificities to the way we mark St. Patrick's Day in the United States. The dying of the rivers green, for example, that is a specifically United States phenomenon. I hear of things like pinching, which we don't do in Ireland, that I think are United <laughs> States phenomenon. I mean, like many things, the United States took St. Patrick's Day and made it bigger and more extravagant. So, you know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful expression of the Irish American experience, how, how much St. Patrick's Day is, is celebrated here. It's really a a celebration of heritage and for those who are not Irish, an opportunity to join in some festivities. It's very welcoming to all. And that intrigues me because I wondered if either of you have thoughts about why the Irish are associated with charm and wit. What are your thoughts about that? Not all cultures carry that. <laughs> it's all we've got, Lois. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think that uh, that's a lovely thing to say. And I think it's wonderful that St. Patrick's Day really has become such an inclusive holiday. And, you know, for the Irish in Ireland, certainly I grew up very close to uh, Slemish Mountain in uh, County Antrim in the north of Ireland. And that's where St. Patrick traditionally was held to have tended sheep when he first came to Ireland. But our St. Patrick's Day involved climbing the mountain and it was, you know, sort of a pilgrimage and you could eat sweets on that day because you didn't have to observe Lent. And there wasn't a parade in my childhood, but of course it has really grown exponentially since then. And as, as Quiva said, the boomerang effect or the magnifying effect of, you know, how much it is celebrated across the world. It just brings such joy to people of Irish extraction. And, you know, as you say, it's, it's welcoming and it's saying, here's a day to celebrate and my friend Bernard O'Donoghue the poet he used to always say we're all Irish in the sight of God. <laughs> oh I love it well I must tell you that a gentleman I met from BBC Wales was quick to point out to me that St. Patrick was actually Welsh. Mm. That's what they say. They say he was, in fact, you know, kidnapped and taken across from Wales to to Ireland. And then, but he must have forgiven us because then when he became a priest, he came back to Ireland to try and convert the, the pagan Irish to Christianity. <laughs> so. <laughs> and it was pre-nation, of course, wasn't it? Exactly, exactly. Fourth or fifth century, something like that. So, Geraldine, your scholarly work includes a book about the great Irish playwright Brian Friel. You've also written about representations of Irishness in popular culture. Would you give us a few examples? 
Oh, um, yes, it's one of my has been was one of the most enjoyable aspects of, of research that I did. It started off, I was listening to a radio broadcast and they were talking about Ireland and they quoted Yeats's famous line, a terrible beauty is born. And I wondered, you know, what did journalists do before Yeats's poem? <laughs> <laughs> so I started looking at instances of when particularly politicians were quoting Yeats specifically, and it was extraordinary just the range of people across the world and um, mostly America, Ireland, England and Europe. But even to see, you know, the head of the, the EU quoting a Yeats poem. And of course, the most quotable poem was The Second Coming things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loosed upon the world. And th those lines just came up over and over again in many contexts. It's strange because they, of course, applied to everything from the Iraq war to people deserting Facebook. <laughs> so uh, they were lines that had a, had a real universal appeal. So, and then of course, more recently, President Obama and President Biden have been quoting Seamus Heaney. So I've been really loving seeing these these lines of poetry come up in such different contexts. Well, you curated a huge exhibition tribute to Seamus Haney at Emory. Again, the storytelling tradition, the verse that resonates with people beyond the academy. Is there a way to sum it up? I think it's the love of stories. I do think it's that idea that everyone has a wonderful story to tell and, you know, words and language and music in no uncertain terms, you know, when the Irish had nothing, that was one of the traditions they passed on, one of the things they cared about. And in fact, the good news is, is that the exhibition, there's a, the Heaney exhibition that I helped to curate in Dublin for the National Library of Ireland is in fact traveling to Atlanta in the fall. So we are looking forward to bringing Heaney back to Emory and to the consulate this fall with this new exhibition, Seamus Heaney, listen now again. So we hope people will come out and have a chance to hear his words again and to celebrate his wonderful life. Oh, we will look forward to that in the fall. Well, given the rich literary and storytelling in Ireland, I've asked each of you to share a poem with us. Quiva, would you like to begin and would you set it up for us, please? Of course. Well, Lois, this St. Patrick's Day, we're marking three big anniversaries for Ireland. 100 years of Ireland in the world, 100 years of Ireland's foreign policy, 50 years of Ireland's membership of the European Union, and very importantly, 25 years of the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement was a 1998 peace agreement uh, that brought to an end the troubles. And so it's very important to us to mark that this year around St. Patrick's Day. And there's a beautiful poem by a Belfast poet called Michael Longley, which he wrote in August 1994, around the time that of, of rumours of an IRA ceasefire. And he wrote this poem as his own small contribution to peace and to encouraging actors in the peace process. And at the time he was reading an episode in the Iliad 
which Michael Longley calls the, the greatest poem about war and death. And it's the episode where Priam visits the tent of Achilles to beg for the body of his son, Hector. And so Michael Longley published this poem in, in 1994 in the Irish Times in the hope of making a contribution to peace. And I'll read from it now. Put in mind of his own father and moved to tears. Achilles took him by the hand and pushed the old king gently away. But Priam curled up at his feet and wept with him until their sadness filled the building. Taking Hector's corpse into his own hands, Achilles made sure it was washed and for the old king's sake, laid out in uniform, ready for Priam to carry, wrapped like a present home to Troy at daybreak. When they had eaten together, it pleased them both to stare at each other's beauty as lovers might. Achilles built like a god, Priam good-looking still, and full of conversation, who earlier had sighed. I get down on my knees and do what must be done, and kiss Achilles' hand, the killer of my son. And I just think that's a piece of poetry that says it all about the pain of reconciliation and of making peace and of making peace with your enemies. So I think it's a beautiful piece to keep in mind as we mark the Good Friday Agreement anniversary. And I should say also, I should pay tribute to a great Atlanta-based scholar, Marilyn Richterich, who's a professor of English literature in Georgia State. And she has written a book called Getting to Good Friday, uh, which contains a chapter about this poem and its contribution to peace. And Marilyn, I, I heard Marilyn read this poem recently and, and it, it convinced me that this was the piece to read on your show, Lois. Oh, thank you for sharing that. Well, Professor Higgins, oh, I, you know how I love saying it. How many times do you get teased about that? I just love it. I think you're the only one who uh, who knows oh. Oh, Professor Higgins from My Fair Lady, and I love it. Well, uh, you are so much more likable and endearing than Rex Harrison. So I won't say poor Professor Higgins. I'll say dear Professor Higgins. What poem will you share with us for St. Patrick's Day? Thank you, Lois. I'd like to read the opening poem from a wonderful new book by Irish poet Vona Grork, and it's called Hereafter, The Telling Life of Ellen O'Hara. And Ellen O'Hara was a young immigrant from Ireland at the end of the 19th century, and she made a life for herself in New York while sending money home to support her relatives, as many, many, many hundreds of people did. And hereafter is her story told by Vona Grork, who's her descendant in a blend of poetry and prose and history. And Vona builds this story from historical fact, drawing from various archives for evidence of Ellen, whom she imagines sitting opposite her in a wooden chair, sometimes asking her questions, sometimes mocking, but very rarely helping her great granddaughter tell this story. The book opens with this poem called Being Here. My great grandmother stops by today to check in on me. She makes tea from leaves and bids me drain it quickly, for once in my life, not to speak. Looking into the cup, she tells me to buy a bicycle, grow my hair and wear it up, that a man I don't know thinks ardently of me, that number six will be significant 
and that I should have my eyes checked. It seems she gets by by fortune telling on the other side. No version of the future, she says, is wasted on the dead. It's true, my eyes have been feeling the strain of hour on hour screen gleaning for verifiable facts. I started with no more than her name. Now I have a list of questions to put to her that she doesn't seem to be frank inclined to answer. She tilts the leaves, examining, but gives no more commands, then gones herself into thin air. The small white cup remains. And this opening poem is just part of this incredible account drawn from all of these different archives where she tries to track down her great grandmother. Of course, her grandmother, when she first went to America, worked in domestic service. And these Irish domestic servants were often referred to as biddies. The biddies or biddy is also remembered in Ireland's newest national holiday, which is was just passed, which is St. Bridget's Day on February 1st in bulk. And it marks the first day of spring and the first time that Ireland has named a national holiday after a woman. So we are delighted that St. Patrick is now joined in celebration with St. Bridget on February. That is fantastic. <laughs> and what a perfect lead in because I was hoping we could end with Quaver speaking about any Irish consulate observances or plans for International Women's Day. Cueva, I'm not sure all of Atlanta knows, but before you were here, you worked at the United Nations on the Commission on the Status of Women. Is that the correct division? That's that's right, Lois. Yes, I was I was working on gender equality at the UN before I came here and International Women's Day was our St. Patrick's Day at the UN, if I could put it like that. It was our big, you know, a big, big, big day of observance at the UN. In a way, I mean, Geraldine rightly introduced St. Bridget, the figure of St. Bridget. We celebrated in great style St. Bridget here on the 1st of February. We had a consulate event. So we saw that in a way as our contribution to International Women's Day. But keep an eye out. We will have, we will be releasing a video uh, showcasing a multidisciplinary work dance, uh, visual arts and poetry, I believe, for International Women's Day, showcasing the creativity of, of Irish women. So watch out for that on our Ireland Atlanta Twitter feed. Quaveni Cahour, the Council General of Ireland for the Southeast United States, and Geraldine Higgins, Professor of Irish Studies at Emory University. More information about St. Patrick's Day events in Atlanta is on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Time now for our series, Speaking of Music, where we get to hear from Atlanta musicians in their own words. Hi, my name is Nikki Speak of Nikki and the Phantom Callers. I am a singer mainly, that's my main instrument, and a songwriter. I also play rhythm guitar in the band. I play bass in other bands around town sometimes or on tour, um, and a little bit of mandolin, but I would say my main instrument is singing. It's hard to get out. 
describe our music as country rock. It's not really country, it's not really rock. There's some punk elements in there as well. Uh, our, our drummer, John Speaks, calls it country adjacent. But there's a little bit of everything, some punk or honky-tonk influences mixed in there. started in music I started singing in church as a little girl but when I went to college in my early 20s I met other people that I just wanted to join a band and we just had fun I was in an all-girl punk band and then I did like some coffee shop singer-songwriter type things uh, and that involved into just meeting new people and being in different bands and playing with several people over the years and ultimately uh, created my own band as an outlet for songwriting. I call Atlanta home because I've lived here almost 20 years and over that time I've built a network of really great people that I love and that are very supportive and that I love to support as well. Atlanta has influenced my music because I feel like compared to other cities, it's it's a smaller music community and kind of anything goes. You know, I think there's a lot of experimentation. People are very intertwined in different projects and I feel like that's a really great creative process so you don't get bogged down and having to fulfill this certain role or this certain genre or persona if you don't want to. I love to go see live music. I love to watch people do their craft and often when I'm at a show I can I hear like a little melody or I think of a lyric and I just kind of keep it in my note section of my phone and also just playing with other players I learned so much from them I've learned so much from my bandmates and being consistent motivates me otherwise you can kind of get stuck in a rut is called Everybody's Going to Hell But You and Me. That's also the name of the album. That came about because I, well, I guess I'm still technically a registered dietitian, even though I haven't practiced in a while, but I used to work at Wesley Woods Emory in the geriatric and psychiatric dementia ward. And there was a patient that I had, and one day she came up to me, and she pulled me aside to whisper, and she said, you see everybody here? Everybody in this room, everybody's going to hell, but you and me. And it just really struck me, and I was somehow flattered by it. And I just decided to write a song about my time there and kind of how helpless it must feel to lose your memories in that way. We've been pushed down. 
town, my favorite places to hear performances are places like the Earl, 529, Star Bar, because those places are a little bit like home. For bigger shows, I always love the Tabernacle. Lately, I've been really drawn to going back to like the good old house show. I think that kind of came about more during the pandemic, and I've been to some recently, and it kind of is invigorating because it brings me back to my youth and starting to when I started out playing music and it's just more intimate and I think there's less chatter people are more devoted and they're more in tune to the artists and it's just a lot of fun speak of Nikki and the Phantom Callers. More information about the band as well as our entire Speaking Up series is on our website, wabe.org slash speaking of. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., we'll hear from the director of the 2023 Atlanta Science Festival about their upcoming events. Plus, Coro Vocati's artistic director, John Dixon, tells us about this weekend's tribute concerts to Robert Shaw. And John Linnell of They Might Be Giants joins us ahead of the band's Saturday show at the Easter. City Light senior producer is Kim Trobes. Our producers are Summer Evans and Janine Etter, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. We're at WABE City Lights on Facebook and Instagram. And you can follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to WABE Atlanta. From WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Hey y'all, I'm Mark Kendall. And I'm David Perdue. And we're the hosts of What's Good Atlanta, the new weekly comedy podcast from WABE. On What's Good Atlanta, we run down uplifting and unusual headlines from the universe known as Atlanta. And while we may not be journalists, we are comedians and we'll be breaking down news and breaking down the stories that make you smile. We're just trying to see what's good, Atlanta. Episodes drop Fridays at WABE.org or wherever you get your podcasts. I get mine from a guy named Craig. Shout out to Craig. Mm -hmm. (laughs) W-A-B-E.